Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from the Message Trust. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing, check out our website, message.org.uk. All right, let's turn to James 2. And uh, we're going to look at the second half of uh, James chapter 2, verses 14 through to the end. Classic verses on faith. So picking up on verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, uh, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. We are no strangers to um, broken promises and uh, hypocrisy in our culture, and, and we're certainly going through a lot of that stuff, politically speaking, at the moment. And every single day, you turn on the news, and it seems like you know there's a, a new story to tell of how somebody's broken a promise or somebody's renamed on on something they said that they would do politically or or, or elsewhere in our in our world, and. Brexit and, and that whole saga could be summed up probably in, in those two words, broken promises. Those who wanted to leave and voted to leave are, are feeling that the promise has been broken. The, the actual covenantal agreement that has almost been made by uh, their vote to leave, that it's been broken because we haven't left yet. Uh, and of course, there's many who, who voted to, to remain, to stay, who feel like promises have been broken uh, about what would happen, you know, and if, if, if the vote didn't go through, sorry, if, if uh, Theresa May's plan didn't go through and, and surely we should have a chance to, to go back and this now, this isn't a talk about politics and the rights and the wrongs and the where's and the where nots, but it is to say that we, we are experiencing around us all of the time the, the effects of people saying one thing and doing something else, and, and we, we hate it. It doesn't take long to look around and the news stories, and these days it's very common in a BBC news story or somewhere else for them to embed the tweets from the average person, you know, a, a bevy of kind of real life opinions from people. And, and we see that the common theme that people have is, is I don't feel like they're doing what they said that they would do. 
That, that's the most common narrative, the most common complaint that seems to be coming out of this whole Brexit saga is actually, it just feels like we've been lied to. It feels like people aren't matching up to the standard, the value, the principle that they said that they would have. Our faith that we profess in Jesus Christ brings with it some very identifiable criterion. It brings with it some values, some principles, some realities that should be outworked within our lives. When people hear us profess the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior, but then see us live in a way which denies him as such, they are left believing that we are hypocrites. And you know what? They're right. We are hypocrites if we profess Jesus as Lord, but live with him expelled from the seat of lordship in our life, then we are hypocrites. But it is a challenge for us to reveal our faith authentically into the world because faith is quite an abstract concept. To have a personal faith, and of course that's one of the big things these days, is people don't mind you having a personal faith, but it needs to stay personal. You shouldn't share it with anybody else. But even the idea of personal faith is a tricky one because how do you actually qualify the meaningfulness of what faith actually is and the difference that it makes to your life and by proxy the difference that it will make to those around you? Here's the thing. Any worldview that you adopt is not going to be a personal one. You can say that it's a personal worldview because you hold it personally, but if you interact with any other human being, it's going to cease to be a personal worldview because it will shape how you interact with the world. It will shape how you interact with other people. It will shape how you, uh, uh, the values that you have. It will probably shape how you deal with your emotions and what you spend your time doing, what you spend your money. All of these things will be affected and therefore there will be repercussions from your worldview for the people and for the world uh, around you. How do we as Christians reveal an authentic faith to the world? That means that the world doesn't just look at us and go, you're just like the politicians that let us down. You know, oh, the institution of the church, well, you say that you care about the widow and the orphan, but then you spend time ignoring the widow and abusing the orphan. That, that's a catastrophic problem for us. Because instead of revealing the identity of Christ, we just reveal more of the identity of broken humanity. And the world doesn't need more of the identity of broken humanity. That's the problem that we've got in the first place. So how do we reveal an authentic faith into the world? That's what James is trying to get to the heart of in uh, this particular section of his letter. And he's saying, look, you can say that you have faith all, all that you want, but if it doesn't actually make any difference to your life, if it doesn't impact those people around you in any meaningful way, then it's useless. It's dead. In fact, three, he phrases it three different times in verse 17. Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 20, faith without deeds is useless. 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James is saying, hey, look, that kind of faith where you say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a believer, and then you carry on out in the world just exactly the same as you were before. He says, guess what? At, at, at best, useless. At worst, dead. That's a pretty bad spectrum to, to be on. You know, on the one, well, I'm doing pretty well today, but the best I can hope for is useless. You know, I'm having a bad day today, so I'm, I'm, I'm on the dead end of the spectrum. That's not a good spectrum to be on. Actually, what God is looking for us to be is useful to his kingdom purposes and alive in Christ. That's the spectrum that we're on. And actually, it's not even a spectrum. It's a perfect synergy that's held together. We are useful because we've been made alive in Christ. And this is what James is trying to get at. So we're going to look at very quickly at six things that we need to understand about faith. And the first thing is this. The faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. 
And actually, it's such a precious gift. God, by in his infinite grace and compassion and love for us, those who he has created in his own image, we are created in the image of God. We are his image bearers, and yet we run away, we reject, say, ah, God, I don't want your image. I'm good, I'll go and make an image for myself. And God's like, oh, that's, that's not going to end very well. You know, you're going to hurt yourselves. You're going to bring brokenness into the world because my image is perfect. Any other image that you try to bring into the world is going to bring distortion and perversion and chaos. But we go off and we do that. And so by his grace and his mercy, he sends Jesus Christ, the the visible image of the invisible God, to help us to be restored back to our own image, the trueness of who we are, our full identity. Such a precious thing. And the way that we, uh, and it's through Christ that we can have faith. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have access to everything that we need. You know what faith is the gateway to? Faith is the gateway to justification, being made right again with God. Faith is the gateway to salvation, being saved from our own sinfulness, from the wrath of God. And actually, instead of receiving punishment, receiving life and peace. It is the gateway to power, the Holy Spirit taking up residence within us and empowering us to be the people that we were always supposed to be. It is the gateway to adoption, that we would know our true identity as the children of God. It is the gateway to eternity. It is the ga- We could go on and on. It is the gateway to everything that is good, because it is the gateway to God himself. But the amazing thing about faith is it is a gift. Now, God will never force this gift upon you. God will only give the gift of faith to those who have a desire to receive it. But it is actually something that you need to be blessed with by God himself. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Just what I was talking about there. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Amazing. Gift of God. But then Paul goes on to say something that confuses people when they start reading James. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So it's not by works. But hang on a second. Didn't we just read a couple moments ago, James saying that the faith without works is is dead? And of course, sometimes, not so much these days, because people are a bit more switched on than they used to be. But sometimes people get a bit confused about this one. And they're like, wait, Paul's saying, you know, faith alone, not with the works. And James is saying faith with the works. What, what, what's the differentiation here? And it's like, no, they're, they're saying exactly the same thing. Paul's speaking to audiences who are obsessed with trying to win approval and favor with God and salvation by sticking to the law. If I stick to the law, then I'll earn salvation. And Paul's like, no, that never worked. That's why God needed to send Jesus. It's faith in him that will bring you the gateway to all of those wonderful things. But then James is talking to a community who uh, are actually kind of uh, going, oh, fantastic, we can just uh, put our faith in Jesus Christ and carry on as was and, and that'll be lovely. And he's like, no, you've missed it. Faith is living and it's active and it makes a difference to your life if you want faith to be revealed in the world as an authentic, transformational truth then it needs to be revealed in the fact that you don't look the same as you did before you professed a faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, that's going to work itself out in your life. I want you to, you're going to have to use your imaginations a little bit right now, but I want you to imagine that I, um, that I don't go to the gym and that I'm not as well you know, stocked as I am right now. And uh, obviously, clearly, that I don't take uh, as much protein as I normally take in a, in a, in a working week. And uh, that actually one day someone comes to me, Daniel Eduardo comes to me and he says, he says, bro, I, uh, bro, comes to me, he says, uh, are you alive tonight? And I, and I, 
I say it's the morning. What are you talking about? And he, he says, uh, I, I want to give you a gift. And I'm like, fantastic. And he says, the gift is uh, it's a gym membership. And, uh, and it's also uh, some protein, a year's worth of protein packs and all that kind of stuff. And um, I don't even know how that stuff works. And, uh, uh, and um, uh, you put it on your stomach, right? And it tones you up or something. Is that how it works? Yeah, I don't know. And, um, and, and he says, and also, also I've been doing my accreditations. And I don't know why he sounds like Arnie, but anyway. Um, <laughs> it's like, I've been doing my accreditations and uh, I'm also a certified personal trainer. So you've got the gym membership, you've got the packs. And, uh, and also, I'm going to come with you to the gym and we're going to do the sessions together. And in a year's time, you are going to be built. You're going to be hench. You're going to be active. You're going to be fit for purpose. For, I don't know what the purpose is, but you're going to be fit for it, right? You'll be ready. And I'm like, wow, great, thanks so much. And, you know, a bunch of other people find out about this and they're like, wow, that's amazing, but it's going to be hench in a year's time. And, uh, and then a year down the road, I- I'm even skinnier uh, than I was before. And uh, I don't look bigger, I don't, I don't look stronger. In fact, you see me walking around and I look out of breath, climbing up the stairs, like a normal thing, basically. You see me tired and, it's, it, and, and you're like, whoa, hang on a second. Now, in your mind... You start looking at Daniel, you don't ask any questions, you just start looking at Daniel and you think to yourself, I think there must be two things going on here. I think either Daniel was lying about those gifts. I don't think he bought Ben that gym membership at all. Because Ben would have gone. If he'd bought him the gym, he would have gone. I don't think he bought him those protein packs or powders or whatever it is. I don't think he would have bought him that stuff. Because if, if he bought it, Ben would have used it. He would have put it in his mouth and he would have done the exercise. Or... He's just a terrible personal trainer. And every time Ben goes and trains, he's telling him all the wrong things to do because Ben isn't getting any fitter, any stronger at all. And yet, what's the reality of it? I never went to the gym, not once. Not one time. I never exercised. I know it's a shock. shock. This is a true story, by the way. (laughs) I never went to the gym once. I never exercised, literally, in fact, the gift that Daniel gave me. Faith is a gift. And gifts need to be used. If you take the gift that God has given you, this gift of faith, and you go, great, thanks very much, God. And then you never put it into action. You're going to stay anemic. You're going to still struggle to walk up the stairs. You're not going to be able to lift any strong weight. And yet God's saying, no, I gave you the gift so that you could grow, so that you could become strong in the kingdom for my purposes, so that you could go and be my witness into the world. The evidence of the gift is in its usage. In Colossians 2, 6 and 7, the term faith that Paul uses here suggests that faith is something to be accepted and then embodied in the life that we live. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Faith is a gift, but it is to be used. And what does it lead to? Well, the second thing that we learn about faith is that it leads to transformation. You see, uh, James says, basic belief is not enough. In John's gospel, John is obsessed with uh, belief. He, He uses the word belief or believe over and over again. And of course, he gives his summary in both John 20 and 21. He gives the, basically the same summary at the end of both, which is to say, look, I've written this gospel that, that you would believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is, in fact, God himself, the son of God, the savior of the world, the king of kings. I've written these things so that you would believe. And again, it would be too easy for us to fall into the trap of reading John's gospel and think, oh, great. So it is. It's just about belief. As long as I believe in Jesus, that will be enough. And it's like, no, look at the stories within John's gospel of what happens to those people. 
who put their trust in him. Or look at the way that Jesus even talks to people about believing in him. Nicodemus in John chapter three. What does Jesus say to Nicodemus that confuses him? He says, you've got to be born again. You're going to be born again. What's being born again about? It's about newness. It's about starting again and growing from being that infant Christian to grow strong into a mature Christian. Then the very next chapter, he meets the Samaritan woman and she's a bit confused about what's going on. And then she suddenly gets a revelation that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And what does she do? She runs back to her town. and She says, hey, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. You've got to come and meet this guy. Why does she do that? Just because she believes that he's the Messiah and, and, it, and it's like, oh, okay, great, good, I believe you're the Messiah and that'll be that for me, thank you very much. No, because when she understands a little bit of who Jesus actually is, she is overwhelmed and transformed and moved to a place where she has to go and tell other people that they too can experience the amazing power of this man, the Messiah, who has come to make worship possible for all people, not just on the mountain, not just in Jerusalem, but wherever you are, whoever you are, you can worship God because of what Jesus has done. Uh, look at um, Thomas, the end of John's gospel in John chapter 20. Thomas moves from a place of despair and brokenness, having seen Jesus die, to a place of worship and adoration. The first character in the New Testament to directly call Jesus God. My Lord and my God, Thomas declares as he sees the resurrected Christ. Literally a picture of moving from brokenness and despair to wholeness and restoration and hope because of who Jesus is. And church tradition would have it that Thomas went to uh, potentially to India and was martyred for his faith so that the world could know the hope of Jesus. The story within John's gospel, even though he's always talking about belief, is a story of newness and restoration and hope and transformation because that's the story of faith. If we are the same, having received the gift of faith as we were before, the gift is rendered pointless. The Bible promises that transformation is the mark of true faith. Romans 12, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our minds are no longer the same as they were before, which is good because my mind needs some transforming because it's not good. But God is good and he transforms it to be good. 2 Corinthians 5, we become new creations. The old has gone. It's gone, the old stuff. How can faith just be a a thing to believe and go, great, I believe in you, Jesus, then I carry on as I was before? It's not true faith if the old is still there, but the old is gone, the new has come. One of the things I love about being in the advanced movement is is hearing all of the stories that come back from from all the evangelists that are connected into the movement. It's Ace. And uh, Andy's talked a little bit about Mo and this young lad that he's been mentoring called Ty, who was a bit of a gangster on the streets of Harlan putting guns in people's faces and the fact that over a series of weeks they prayed for him, they met him, they evangelized to him and he's now got connected into the church, he's been baptized, he's um, preaching in the church, he's writing no more knife crime songs and all this kind of stuff, right? Transformation has taken place in that young man's life because he has put his faith in Jesus Christ, he's received the gift what God has given him and it has begun to change him. The evidence that God is there is the evidence of transformation. We saw the same thing at the, uh, with the Oak stories on prayer day. A powerful time of hearing trans- the transforming effects and work of God. Man, we've got to celebrate these stories more because this is the evidence that our faith is real. Look, faith is a potentially abstract concept. So we, we have to be thinking, how can we show that it's real? And the Bible repeatedly shows us, well, the number one way that we do it, it, it is through the transformation of, of our lives. We move from the old and we move into new. Look, uh, James says, um, look, show me your faith 
without deeds, he says in verse 18. Look, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And James says, show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by my deeds. In other words, what he's saying is, look, try to show me your faith without your deeds. Go ahead. Go for it. Show me your faith without deeds. Guess what? You won't be able to do it. Why? Because it's abstract. It's just a concept. If there's no deeds to back up the claims that you're making, then uh, you've got no hope. We are expected in this day and age, and don't worry, this isn't as controversial as you you might think when I first say it. Um, We are expected these days to accept people's self-identification just based on what they say about themselves. Obviously, transgenderism would be the most obvious one these days, but it's not the only one. There are many ways in which people would self-identify as something, and most of the time these days, we are expected to just accept what they say about themselves and treat them as such. What James is saying here is he's saying as Christians, we, we, that doesn't cut it. As Christians, we've got a higher standard than that. As Christians, it's not good enough for us to just say, we're Christians, accept us as such. He said, the the world can quite rightly turn around and say, well, show us then. And Jesus says, yes, exactly right. They should ask that of you because I showed them. I showed them exactly what it means to to, to lay down your life for your friends. I showed them what it means to come into the world in a costly way. I've shown them what the transforming effects of God's love can be in this world. You have to reveal transformation through faith. But that number three requires trust in God. My sister, many years ago, I went on a school trip. I was about nine or probably about 10, uh, to Scarborough with my primary school. And my sister lent me her Game Boy, which at the time was the, the height of technology. I mean, it didn't get any better than that. The Game Boy, that was it. I mean, it was like black, black and white screen. You couldn't do much with it. Tetris was about it, but it was great. And uh, she lent it to me. And of course, the words that she gave me before I went on the school trip was, please look after it. It's like, yeah, of course I look after it. So I go away on the school trip. And then we go on to the beach and we do some like rock stuff and we're trying to find cool rocks with like crystals inside and stuff as part of our school lesson that day. And so we get some rocks and I put the rocks in my, in my bag, which is also where I keep the Game Boy. And when I get home, a couple of days later, I show my mum the rocks that I collected. Hey mum, look at these rocks that we found. They're cool, aren't they? Look, they've got crystals and stuff inside. And mate, it's probably worth some money. Buy yourself a house, mum. Go for it, right? <laughs> Oh, Kate, thanks so much for lending me your uh, Game Boy. Oh, the screen has been scratched completely beyond recognition. You can't even see it anymore. Those rocks have done their dirty work. And I'm like, here's a rock to buy a new Game Boy with. (laughs) I'll tell you what, that was like almost 30 years ago, and I 100% promise you she has still not forgiven me for that. (laughs) Do you think she lent me anything for the foreseeable future? I don't think she's ever lent me anything since. She trusted me, and I I let her down her trust. We do, we do let down each other trust. Even when we had good intentions, I didn't mean to do it. I just made a mistake, but it hurt her when I betrayed her trust in her eyes. But the thing is, faith, by its very definition, you look up any dictionary definition of faith. Faith, by its very definition, means complete trust in God. Not, not partial trust, just like we were singing. Not, not, not partial hope, complete hope. And the question that, that James is saying here is, uh, the, the, the whole issue of what James is raising here is, is do you have a complete trust in God because complete trust in God will result in complete obedience and submission and complete obedience and submission to God will mean that your actions in the world will look very different than they otherwise 
word. Look, sometimes we need help in this. Think of the, the father who comes to Jesus asking for, for healing for his son. Uh, and what does he say in Mark's gospel, in Mark, Mark chapter 9? He says, look, I, I believe, I, I do believe Jesus, but help me in my unbelief. And that's, I think, our posture in our faith. He's like, God, I do trust you. I do, I really do trust you, God, but help me in my untrust. Help me, because we're frail. And we do struggle sometimes. And God's like, look, it's okay. I understand. I'm not trying to catch you out. I do want to help you. I do want to help you persevere. But I do need you to just take that step and just go forwards and put your whole trust in me. Because faith requires trust. And true trust will always be costly. That's number four. Faith is costly. Faith isn't costly because God's going to let us down. I think that's why some people think that faith is costly. Oh, faith's going to be costly because God somehow is going to let me down and then I'll have to count the cost of following. No, don't be crazy. God's never going to let you down. He's perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't fail you. He doesn't leave you hanging. He doesn't abandon you. God is with you. He is with us. But it is costly because sometimes God will ask you to do things that don't make sense to you. Sometimes God will ask you to do things that seem savage and confusing and painful. And the example that James cites here is Abraham and Isaac. What more confusing a story is there in the Bible than the story of Abraham and Isaac? A story that often gets thrown at me when I'm talking to atheists about God's moral character. Well, God would ask Abraham to kill his son. That's no God that I would want to follow. So maybe not. But a God that would provide a sacrifice so that he didn't have to. That's the God I want to follow. And that's what God has done for us. He's provided the sacrifice. The, the, the writer of Genesis knows how scary this story is because he doesn't wait until halfway through to let us know that this was a test from God. He doesn't say kind of, and Abraham lifted the knife to kill Isaac. By the way, this was a test. Oh, thank goodness for that. He says it right at the beginning. God tested Abraham. Oh, thank goodness. As I'm reading this story, I can understand it's a test. We've already heard Louis preached about this last week, and I mentioned it when I was talking about the early part of James. God never tempts. He's not in the business of tempting anybody. Temptation is about failure. Temptation means I want you to fail. God is in the business of testing, because when you test somebody, you want them to pass. And God wants Abraham to pass the test. And the test is simply, what matters to you most? What cost will you count? to follow me. And Abraham says, I'll count any cost, even my son. And God says, all right, I'll go one better. I'll give you my son instead. That's the God that we follow. Faith is costly, but it's not a cost that God himself wouldn't be willing to pay. So many people in the world, though, don't actually see us counting the cost of our faith. If the world doesn't see us counting the cost, then how, what does it mean to say that Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the centerpiece of who we are, counted the cost of everything for us? And he's the one that we follow. He's the one who is our example. He's the one in whom we are empowered. Faith is costly. But as I just alluded to, faith ultimately, number five, revolts, results in provision. God provides for his people. No matter how faithful we might be, God outfaithfuls us. No matter how much we might give to God, God outgives us. No matter how much we might love God, God outloves us. No matter how many sacrifices we might make for God, God outsacrifices us. Jesus sacrificed, so well, Jesus was sacrificed to take away the sins of many. Hebrews 9 28. God provides. The reason why people struggle with the story of Abraham and Isaac so much is because they miss the point of the story. And they think, oh, is it a story just about Abraham's faithfulness? No, it's never about the person in the story. We can be inspired by those people, but these stories are always about who? God. So what's the point of the story, Abraham and Isaac? Simple. God provides. That's what the point of the story is. God provides for his people. Why? Because he is good. 
He's always good. And it might seem costly and putting your trust in him might be painful and challenging. But remember, he is good. And that's the view within which we put our trust in him. And finally, with that in mind, it means that number six, our faith can glorify God. Our faith doesn't glorify us. My actions in this world, by doing, James is saying, look, you know, you've got to do deeds in this world. You've got to go and do the deeds. But they're not so that people can look at me and go, wow, aren't you a great Christian? No. It's so that people can go, wow, isn't God great? Don't you worship a great God? Yes, I do. That he could use somebody like me to do some of the things in the world that he's asked me to do. I could do those things. But God through me can. Sure, there might be some misplaced adoration in the world from time to time. You can't legislate for how people choose to view you and whether they choose to credit what God is doing through you as your glory. If, you, if you've done what you can do to say, no, it's not me, it's God, then that's with them as to how they perceive it. But as we go in the world, I truly believe as we press into authentic faith, faith that is a gift. Thank you, God, for this gift. I'm going to use it. And that gift is then going to transform me. I'm going to become more like you, more like the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the very character of God himself. That's what I'm going to look like. And it's going to happen by me putting my trust in you. I'm going to trust you, even in the difficult stuff. But man, it's going to be costly. But I'm prepared to count the cost because you counted the cost on the cross so that I could know life. And I'm going to trust that your provision for me daily will be enough. The provision of the cross is already enough, but I know there's more provision to come to help me through day by day by day. And I will trust in your provision. And as I go into the world to reveal these things so that other people can benefit from this same saving faith, you, not me, you will be glorified. You. The actions of my faith in the world will reveal something very simple, and it's this, that God is good. Ultimately, faith is about obedience. And so I want to ask you a real simple question, and this is what I'll leave you with as we, as we leave this place this morning. Does your life, your faith, your obedience to God reveal how great God is? Does it truly reveal how great God is? We're always going to be deficient. We're always going to be making mistakes. We're always going to be getting it wrong. There's none of us here who is perfect. The Bible clearly says all have fallen short. But God says, I can use you if you'll take this gift that I've given you and you'll apply it to your life and you won't just go, thanks very much, God, and then never exercise it. But if you'll actually go, wow, God, what a gift. Let me now go and see what this looks like put into action in the world so that when the world hears you say that you have faith, they know what you mean. And they don't just think, oh, here's another trivial person who says one thing and does something else. They will know what you mean because the way that your life is lived in the world matches up to the powerful expression of faith that you profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'll leave you with this question. Something for you to mull over today. Heaven forbid, but if you stopped believing in Jesus Christ today, literally stopped believing, stopped having faith in Jesus Christ, how many things about your life in the coming weeks and months would change and look different? If the answer is just a few, well, praise God. My encouragement to you is look at those things and work on them by his grace and his provision and his power to bring them into alignment with the kind of life that he wants you to live. If the answer is 
actually, there's really not many things that would change. There's not many things at all. I actually think if, if I stopped following Jesus, my life wouldn't really look an awful lot different. Then I would simply ask you to stop today, to pray today, to reflect upon God's truth and promises today and say, God, I want my life to reveal that you are good and see what he does. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that faith is living and active. Thank you that faith changes us. Thank you that faith saves us, that we are adopted into your family. But thank you that faith can bring hope, not just to us, but to the world. And people can say, show us your faith by your deeds. And we can say, oh, it's funny you should say that, because that's exactly what Jesus expects of me too. So I'll gladly do it. Whatever it costs, I trust you. I'll be empowered by you. And we will go. And we're so thankful, Lord, that you are delighted to use us to reveal your goodness in the world. Amen. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support or even get involved with one of our teams. 